Zinc and copper is another really important relationship. And so think about, especially with the past few years, what people have done. I'm taking zinc to support my immune system. Well, what you're doing is you are lowering those copper levels. And copper, as we know, is essential for so many different things too. So like you said, taking one isolated thing is going to impact others. And so with those copper deficiency levels, that can you know increase someone's risk for other types of infections. It can throw off iron. And if we throw off iron, we've thrown off the thyroid. I mean, everything exists with different cycles. And the way I even explain it to clients is our body has a number of, like when you think of the Krebs cycle and the folate cycle, think of them as train tracks and you're stopping at different stations to pick up nutrients, right? And if you don't have those essential nutrients at that train station stop, it's not going anywhere. You stuck. <laughs> you got a problem. It's not going to reach the end destination. And then you have fatigue set in, chronic fatigue syndrome, low energy, insomnia, right? Because we're not making sufficient melatonin because we didn't have those precursors on the train tracks to get there to properly produce it. So everything influences everything. And so labs give us this really kind of big overview picture of are we potentially dealing with some deficiencies at play? Hey guys, welcome back. This is the Ancient Health Podcast. My name is Courtney, and today I have a dear friend on that is going to just rock your world when it comes to blood chemistry. So I can't wait for her to introduce herself, tell you a little bit about what she's up to, what she is passionate about, how she's helping change the landscape of health. But she is a functional nutrition therapy practitioner, and her expertise is in the world of blood chemistry. So what that means is if you're going to your normal doctor and getting lab work done, and you maybe have questions about one, what type of labs that they're running on you, what the results actually mean, what you should be concerned about or looking for, this episode is for you because you're going to have an entirely different perspective into how to look at these resources and tools that we're really most familiar with. Emily and I were talking about this just a few minutes ago. This is by far the most used and accessible resource for us to understand what's maybe going on underneath the hood, what's going on inside your body. But there are a lot of misses. There are a lot of holes in how we look at the lab work that we're given. So we're going to dive really into what that looks like, what it means for your health, questions you should be asking your practitioner, and maybe even questions that you should be looking for answers in a different way. So maybe working with somebody that can look at it in a functional capacity, and that's what Emily specializes in. So Without further ado, Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here, for sharing all of the things that you know and your time. I love you as a person, um, but I love all of the work that you're doing uh, even more too. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Always love chats with you. And you did such a good job even like introing in the importance of labs. And I think that people are going to walk away with hopefully a really awesome tool that they can utilize not only for their own health, but hopefully their family and their loved ones. Let's just start it off with, with the overall question of why labs are important. Why do we use blood chemistry to kind of give us, I guess, a blueprint of what's going on in the body? Like, why is it that blood work can show us, you know, all different types of organ function? Why do you think that it's valuable for our health? I think that the most important factor in the fact that People are curious about what's going on. But beyond that, this is typically what a primary care physician or doctor is typically running in a year-to-year -year physical. It's blood work. Now, do they always run a full panel? No. 
They don't. They might run a basic CVC, which is a complete blood count, and a CMP, metabolic panel, and maybe vitamin D and maybe TSH and maybe a few cholesterol lipid markers. But outside of that, they're maybe not running a full panel. But regardless, just those basic markers can provide a ton of insight into the health of organ systems, your kidneys, your liver, your adrenal health, electrolyte balance, possible infection markers, the health of your thyroid. All of these things can be assessed through blood work. And most people, you know, let's be honest, we have insurance that we're paying for. We, we always talk about on the show, functional medicine, using, you know, outside practitioners and help, but it can be really hard for people to access that one, because there's a financial barrier. Sometimes it's just not possible. So they're trying to maximize what they have that's available. So what I really am hoping that we can unpack in this episode is how can we use blood chemistry, what we're getting what we're used to. I mean, that's what, I mean, honestly, like you said, that's really what we've built our conventional medical system on is the first, you know, inclination of there's a symptom or something, a doctor's going to order blood work. So it's, it's something that is very easily, it's tangible. It's easy for you to access, but, and this is where I want to probably even pivot the conversation already. What is it about the conventional labs and the lab ranges that is misleading to Maybe, I mean, maybe it's misleading to doctors. Maybe the doctors know, but maybe you can just shed some light on the lab ranges because oftentimes we think that, I, I would say a lot of people probably go to the doctor with symptoms and they're like, well, your labs look fine. We hear that all the time, mm -hmm. but the people are saying, I don't feel good. Right. So where's the disconnect? Right. That's a good place to start. So I like to start with the word normal here because with labs, that's a common term that doctors will use is your labs look normal. They may make a recommendation based upon one or two markers that the actual lab flags as high or low, which is very rare. And the reason being is because those established lab ranges, if people have their labs in front of them, if they go to the doctor, the far right-hand side, there is going to be an established range. This is the medical range that's provided. It's not the same range that was available 30, 40, 50 years ago because that range is established upon the average health of the U.S. population. That becomes a really big issue because as our population gets sicker and sicker, which we are seeing, we're the most medicated generation of all time. Cardiovascular disease is climbing. Inflammation and neurodegenerative disorders are climbing. And so then you take all those people and you find the average that average has consistently gotten sicker and sicker. Therefore, the ranges are going to get broader and broader. So you go to your doctor and you don't feel great. And no longer is it about optimizing your health. It's what's keeping people out of a hospital bed, sadly and unfortunately. And so if we look at white blood cells, for example, years and years and years and years ago, even throughout published literature, that established range was five to eight. I find that white blood cells optimal for adults is five and a half to seven and a half Kids can be slightly higher just because they're growing. And so they need those additional fighter soldiers. Their immune system is being challenged in different ways where nowadays some labs refer to a quote, normal white blood cell range as three to 11. That becomes a massive issue because when you have that 
white blood cell range dip below five, you could potentially be dealing with autoimmune situations or chronic infection loads, whether that's bacterial or viral or parasitic or mold or metals or whatever it may be that is decreasing the health of those fighter soldiers. Vice versa, someone goes in and they could be in an acute situation or they may not feel great and their white blood cells are at maybe a nine, but on their lab, they're quote, what? Normal yet they are experiencing an acute reactive. So they're sent home with everything looks good. Things are normal, but normal isn't optimal. So I think that's the biggest takeaway with ranges is normal isn't optimal. It's normal based upon the average health of our population, but not optimal as far as I want to feel my best. Yep. That's a great explanation. Do you think that people that are getting these labs are, are there is there another standard like functional ranges? We talk sometimes about, you know, okay, well get the same labs run, know that the, that the results that you're given, right. Are based on these conventional ranges of really kind of a sick population because they're taking the data of the people that are coming to see them. And then they're, they're allocating that on some end of the spectrum of what they deem as low and what they deem as high. But when we look at it from a functional perspective, how is that different? Those are tighter ranges to people, is there a place to access that? Or what do you suggest people do that are getting this routine lab work done, but maybe then they're like, I understand that these ranges aren't a good reflection of where my actual health lands, but I also don't know what to do to bridge the gap between how I know, you know, what, what actually is optimal and what is acceptable. I had an awesome opportunity when I was going through nutritional therapy school to work alongside a functional medicine doctor and chiropractor who has been attending functional blood chemistry conferences and seminars for over 20 years. That gave me an awareness of what are the optimal ranges that we're looking for. And I remember asking him like, why isn't this being taught? This is critical and crucial information. And what if people can't travel across the country for an in-person conference or seminar to learn this material and information once a year? And he's like, you know, that's a really good question. So I took it upon myself. I was like, I want to teach this. So I started teaching classes, basics, and more complex to provide this information to people. But there's also books um, I didn't know about these books back when I created my course, but there is functional blood chemistry online books that are available on Amazon that kind of break down what are some of those functional ranges that you should be looking for. So that would be a good starting point and place for people. And that's the thing. like We're here to help empower people and teach people. So maybe we can even just start with some of the basic labs that you're looking at when you've got somebody that comes in presenting with you know, a couple of symptoms where maybe they just feel tired or, and they're brain fogged. What is it that you generally think are the, the good benchmarks or places to start? Is it just, you know, a complete blood count? Is it a full thyroid panel? And maybe even like from a, an annual perspective for somebody that doesn't have symptoms, but really wants to make sure that there's nothing slipping through the cracks, what labs should they be running every year? And then how do they go about using the information that comes back from those labs to make choices that would alter or change the outcome of their health? So if people are seeking optimal labs for a full picture, what I would recommend, and probably some of these that I'll list first are covered by insurance, but the first would be a complete blood count, a CBC. The second would be a CMP, that's the metabolic panel. 
Vitamin D, now this can get tricky because they're probably going to run the inactive form, which is the 25-OH form. There's an active form that's 125-OH. It's just that it's $50 just for that one marker. Perspective-wise, a CBC is like $8. A CMP is $7 or $8. That's a big difference for one marker. So I always say if you're trying to pick and choose, don't worry about that active form just yet. So CBC, CMP, I do think a full thyroid panel is essential. TSH paints a really small picture. And if you ask your doctor to run a full thyroid panel, chances are they're not. You'll have to list out the specific markers. One thing I want to mention with that, though, is there are people who will have their doctor run this. Insurance won't cover it, and they're going to get a bill in the mail, anywhere from $300 to $1,000. So that is so important and why I typically don't recommend people ask for extensive labs through their doctor if their insurance doesn't cover it because you're going to be eating a ton of dollars. Whereas if you were to go with someone that works in functional blood chemistry, pretty much anyone who's taken my course that's certified can order labs. You can get pretty much any complex marker you want to run with a full lab panel for less than $200. So that's probably the better way. But if you're going, seeking out your doctor, CBC, CMP, ask for a full full thyroid panel, T3, T4, free T3, free T4, reverse T3, free thyroxine index, T3 uptake, and the antibodies. Someone can have thyroid antibodies with a normal thyroid panel, which would be that Hashimoto's or Graves autoimmune situation. And then vitamin D and a lipid panel, cholesterol, LDL, HDL, VLDL, you could take it a step further and ask for the small particles. Doctors will probably look at you like, how did you know that? Why would, because very few, if any, will run that, but it gives you a better predictor and overall picture of your cardiovascular disease risk. Um, And then there's some specialty markers. Sometimes they'll run a CRP, which is C-reactive protein. It's an inflammatory marker. Sometimes they'll run hemoglobin A1C, which is your average blood glucose over the course of two to three months. Few, if any, will run fasting insulin, and that is an essential marker in my opinion. So if you are asking your doctor to run labs, I think fasting insulin is pivotal because it can take 12 to 13 years for a hemoglobin A1C to be affected. Fasting insulin is much more sensitive, and you want that ideal range of like two to six. Most people are walking around with silent prediabetes that have no idea. And so if they go in with those fasting labs and their fasting insulin's above six, and you look at some of the other markers that they're dealing with, whether it's fasting glucose, triglycerides, their um, uric acid, they could be dealing with some blood sugar dysregulation, which is a predictor for the top 10 disease risks. So I think fasting insulin is essential. Um, and then you could run, you know, magnesium. Magnesium's really important for the body. The red blood cell form of it is probably more accurate. You could run homocysteine. There's so many possible markers. I'm like throwing all these out. People are probably like, oh my gosh, that's a lot. But they all like, I I think of it as like windows and you're opening up a window to see a little bit of information. The more windows you open, the more big picture you're going to get about the health of your body. And there's specialty markers too. You know, women with PCOS or infertility can look at the marker prolactin. Um, If someone's dealing with a lot of excess body weight, they can look at leptin and ghrelin, you know, hunger and satiety cues to see if they're dealing with a level of leptin resistance. You can look at your ceruloplasmin levels, which looks at copper. Um, That might be a new word for people, but that's essential for the recycling and utilization of iron. So a lot of people are termed, oh, you're iron anemic, and it's not an issue with iron at all. It's a copper problem, or maybe it's a vitamin A retinol problem because that's needed for proper copper utilization. 
B12, you can look at MMA, which is B12 deficiency indicators. So that's kind of a lot of information and that's barely scratching the surface of different markers somebody can run. Okay. This is really good. I feel like we just kind of went high level and, and (laughs) surfed over a bunch, but then I'm going to like come back and we'll just, you know, we'll kind of like dive a little bit deeper. I want to, I I want to go into two things. The vitamin D we talked about, you see these all the time. So everybody, you know, oh, my vitamin D level is low. My vitamin D is low. Vitamin D it is so critical that you understand what you're actually getting tested, the 25-hydroxy. And also, vitamin D is a hormone. So this is different than than other things that we're evaluating in the blood. So let's just dig in a little bit deeper into vitamin D because a lot of people associate vitamin D with their immune health. And they think, okay, vitamin D is low. Maybe I'm more compromised. And we've got all these viruses going around, everybody getting sick all the time. And they think, well, if I just take maybe like hyper, you know, just exceedingly high amounts of vitamin D that I will be sitting in a better position from my immune standpoint, but that's not necessarily true. And it could be potentially dysregulating other things in the body by mega dosing on one one nutrient. So let's just go into vitamin D really fast because I really want, this is like, to me, so interesting. Well, and most people are familiar with, oh, my vitamin D is low, exactly like you said. And so doctors are going to run that 25 hydroxy marker. And there is a lot of discrepancy on what that ideal range is. If someone is an autoimmune person, theirs naturally may be a bit lower. Think of type one diabetes because their immune system is constantly at a threat from that autoimmune situation. So around 50, I think is a good range for them. However, you really want to look at it compared to the one 25 hydroxy form, which is the active form. And you want those in a one-to-one ratio. So if they're not in a one-to-one ratio, you have to start exploring why. So yes, vitamin D breaking down as a hormone, it has to go from inactive to active through the kidneys and liver. So if there's any issue with the kidneys or liver or bile production, then we're going to have a problem with absorbing the active type. A, D, E, and K are fat-soluble vitamins. If someone isn't digesting fat, they're not making sufficient bile. If their liver is compromised, if their kidneys are stressed due to lack of water or minerals or hydration, that conversion, that absorption, it's not going to take place. So when people start megadosing vitamin D, which to to me, anything over 2000 I use daily would be considered a megadose when it's just day-to-day can actually build up and it can deplete magnesium in the body. It can displace your calcium. It can throw off the parathyroid. It can disrupt the balance with phosphorus. And all those things are essential for bone health and hormonal health and thyroid health. And so you really don't want to do that. In my opinion, it can cause actually more issues. So when someone comes in and we see their labs of that low 25 hydroxy form, I start looking at some of their other labs and asking the question, what does their diet look like? Is their liver a little bit stressed? Are we properly digesting? Are we bloating? Are they having two bowel movements a day? You know, those are all things that I think are really important questions to consider. Another thing we have to consider is most people aren't getting enough sun, you know, like that is the key form of vitamin D for the body. And people either A, aren't getting enough sunshine or B, they're loading up on all this sunblock and sunscreen or certain lotions can actually block the penetration of the sun into the body to make that vitamin D. And then their levels are low. Getting sufficient sunshine 
15 to 20 minutes without sunscreen sunblock, in my opinion, is essential in those summer months because since it's a fat-soluble vitamin, if you spend enough time in the summer, think of bears and hibernation. They eat a whole bunch of food before they hibernate, and then they go into hibernation and they don't eat for a long time, and it carries them through. Vitamin D, it's the exact same thing. There's no difference. So over the summer and over those essential sunshine hours, you're literally building up that vitamin D in your fat. That in the winter time, when we're not able to get as much sun and be out with our bare naked arms and legs to absorb it, you've built up enough reserves to what carry you through. Yep. So those summer months are absolutely essential for that. Does red light therapy have any connection with vitamin D? Just out of curiosity. I haven't found definitive evidence of that just yet, but the receptor sites help with just the natural seasonal depression. There is some studies out there that it does support that, but as far as increasing vitamin D levels, I haven't seen that yet. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That was just a question that popped in my mind because sometimes you, you could sit in front of those red light panels and you kind of get that feeling like where you just feel warm. It's like when you stand in the sun on a cool day and like your core, it's like you're absorbing the warmth of it, but like the air around you is, is cool. So anyway, that was kind of a little, a, a side note there. So this is really critical to understand too, that there are synergistic and antagonistic relationships with all vitamins and minerals. So be very aware when you take vitamin D, more is not always better, but the same goes for every other vitamin and mineral that's out there. Just because you think, well, I'm trying to support my immune system. I'm going to take so much vitamin C or ascorbic acid, whatever it is, like you are going to dysregulate other things that are critical for not only your immune system, but your mitochondria and energy and just overall cellular health. So more is not better when it comes to nutrients. And we can get sometimes a little bit, our minds can get displaced in how we think of that because we just think, well, there's depletion, depletion, depletion. No, it's not always a depletion problem. Sometimes it's a utilization problem. And that's where we have to really distinguish because sometimes if we look at the vitamin D, if it's 25 OH and we're looking at it and it's like 30, doctor's going to say, yep, vitamin D is low. We just need to bump it up. Whereas you're saying, well, maybe we need to look at the gallbladder. Maybe we need to look at liver, the kidney health, all of those things. If you've got fatty stools, I imagine, right? We're not producing where our, our bile, the bile recycling system, all of that is not necessarily breaking down fats and proteins uh, well. So there's more to the picture. <laughs> there's always more to the picture. Zinc and copper is another really important relationship. And so think about, especially with the past few years, what people have done, I'm taking zinc to support my immune system. Well, what you're doing is you are lowering those copper levels and copper, as we know, is essential for so many different things too. So like you said, taking one isolated thing is going to impact others. And so with those copper deficiency levels that can, you know, increase someone's risk for other types of infections It can throw off iron. And if we throw off iron, we've thrown off the thyroid. I mean, everything exists with different cycles. And the way I even explain it to clients is our body has a number of, like when you think of the Krebs cycle and the folate cycle, think of them as train tracks and you're stopping at different stations to pick up nutrients, right? And if you don't have those essential nutrients at that train station stop, it's not going anywhere. You stuck, 
(laughs) you got a problem. It's not going to reach the end destination. And then you have fatigue set in, chronic fatigue syndrome, low energy, insomnia, right? Because we're not making sufficient melatonin because we didn't have those precursors on the train tracks to get there to properly produce it. Everything influences everything. And so labs give us this really kind of big overview picture of are we potentially dealing with some deficiencies at play? I'm so glad you bring up the zinc and copper too, because zinc came on the scene after COVID and it was like, everybody takes zinc, you're going to be fine. And I think zinc in it may be like a short, acute, you know, window could be super Mm -hmm. helpful, but it's when we think, oh, well, I'll just keep taking it, you know, and that's going to, that's going to put me at a better chance of staying healthy, that it can start to deplete other things like Mm -hmm. copper, which also helps regulate iron. (laughs) So that's the next thing I want to actually bring up is iron because for a lot of pregnant women as well, we're seeing so many people that say, well, I'm anemic, I'm anemic, you know, my, my levels are, are low or ferritin or um, hemoglobin, all of these different uh, markers that help us understand what's going on with iron. So can you just shed some light on what the iron markers are? Yeah, there's a lot. I'm just going to let you run with that one. <laughs> So um, I'm going to go through like what the optimal ranges are because there's four markers we kind of look at that are key for the iron. Um, There's more, but those are just the ones I look at. You know, you have the saturation and the transfer and you can look at those, but the four that we look at kind of give us insight into those. So the first one that we'll bring up is this marker and idea of binding capacity, TIBC. And we really want that between 250 and 350. I'll come back to what they need in a second. UIBC, which is sort of that um, unbound version is 120 to 300. Total iron, 80 to 130 and ferritin, 50 to 100. So those are kind of the functional ranges we're looking at. And what may happen in pregnancy or in certain situations is people may start having a ferritin that's dipping a bit lower, iron may go high or low, and you may see situations where that TIBC and UIBC are climbing, which from a medical perspective is quote iron anemia. But there are so many things that influence the iron panel. We touched on copper, right? That's needed for normal iron metabolism. So that's one thing which can be depleted from zinc. But other things that are necessary and you have to look at are vitamin C and vitamin A. So vitamin A affects copper. It also affects iron transportation and iron absorption. Vitamin C helps with increasing that non-heme iron in the gut. And then the antagonist here, well, there's a few antagonists, but a key nutrient that's an antagonist is calcium. So if people are eating a lot of their iron-rich foods with a ton of calcium-rich foods, it's going to decrease that iron absorption. So simply by changing the nutrients in our diet and correcting deficiencies and balancing minerals, you can help with proper iron utilization. From a root cause perspective, alcohol can actually cause iron overload situations in the storage, but the inability to use it. Parasites will actually eat the ferritin reserves. And so if someone goes in, this is always like, it's not great. I'd laugh, but it's not great. They go into the doctor and they're given the diagnosis of iron anemia and they're prescribed or they're told to get on an iron supplement. And if they're eosinophils, which that's something we'll get to in a little bit, which is a parasite potential indicator, if that's above three, all they're doing is feeding those parasites. Parasites will eat those ferritin iron reserves. Another thing that can influence it is heavy metals. 
So, and it's, this is like a double whammy. Iron deficiency can increase heavy metal accumulation and heavy metals can deplete iron. And then a lot of just the food qualities, if we don't have properly soaked or sprouted foods, then things like um, certain nuts, certain grains, certain legumes, certain types of coffee and tea can actually interfere with iron absorption as well. So with all that to say, the solution, I think that that's the typical framework for people that aren't maybe in the functional space of you have X problem, here's Y solution. Y solution could be a plethora of possibilities based upon someone either showing iron overload or iron anemia. Yeah, this is a really, I think we could say this for a lot of different markers, but looking at the cofactors, right? So if something like iron presents as low, we've got to look at what are there cofactors that are missing for us to use iron? Because generally, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, be pretty hard to be iron deficient in our like current modern day life. Like we've been fortifying stuff with iron for a while now too. And so it's generally not the fact that we're deficient. Like we are, we, we overconsume, but we are undernourished from the standpoint of the actual quality of our food. But it's more likely that you have an issue using iron, or maybe you've got a high storage form. Isn't iron supposed to be in the blood more than it is like stored in the tissue? I could be wrong. It, it's, so the liver is a massive area that it's stored um, and it's stored within those ferritin. So ferritin is like the house for iron essentially. Okay. Okay. Point being here that Iron is not simply just iron. It's a lot of other things and it can be it can be deficiency in multiple organ systems. It could be something like parasites, it could be toxicity that's in the body from heavy metals or something else that you've been exposed to. But there are a lot of things that can displace iron or inhibit the ability to use iron effectively in your body. Yeah. So yeah. let's so th- this is great. I like this. I like how we're kind of like just moving through some of these as far as heart health markers. Would you say that heart health, first of all, is like the, one of the most diagnosed conditions, like we see most prescriptions as a result of heart health markers being out of range. So what is it about these heart health, uh, uh, ranges markers that we need to be aware of, uh, so that we can make the best decisions for our cardiovascular health. Right. And something, um, that you mentioned with like medication wise, it, it hasn't been long that cardiovascular medications and blood pressure medications filled those first three spots on top five most prescribed meds in the US. That hasn't always been the case. That's only been in like the most recent years. And they've kind of, some of them have taken the place of even Synthroid and Levothyroxine for the thyroid, which you know, we'll, we'll talk about the thyroid in connection with heart health because your thyroid, that free T3 is what activates the mitochondria in every other organ and system and gland in the body. And so your thyroid health can actually influence some of these heart health markers. And so it's very interesting that more cardiovascular and blood pressure medication are now getting prescribed. The thyroid's going down. It's not that the thyroid's improved. It's that that thyroid is essential for a lot of these heart health markers to properly work. And so going into cardiovascular markers, the ones that they're primarily looking at are your total cholesterol, the LDL, the ratios between them to look at your cardiovascular risk. Um, They're also looking at your highly sensitive CRP and they're looking at homocysteine. Those are some of the ones that are going to help them make that indicator for 
prescribing a medication. And what's super interesting about cholesterol is it gets such a bad rep, but it's absolutely essential. So cholesterol is not the enemy. Your body needs it to be able to make your hormones, to produce um, cellular membranes, to create brain cells. So if someone does not have enough cholesterol, for me, that's below 160. We really want that cholesterol at least 160. Then in men, their testosterone is going to drop. In women or men, the sex drive is going to drop. The function of the overall reproductive system is going to drop. Your cellular membranes, which are made of cholesterol, aren't going to function properly. And our body, the health of it is largely dependent upon the health of those cellular membranes. So um, Dr. Mark Hyman's done a lot of research on this too. And there's this big misconception of, well, it's fat that's driving this cholesterol up. That's the problem. But when you look at, and he put this information out there, like 17 different meta-analysis, larger views of all the data, they found no link between heart disease and saturated fat or total fat. Um, and that's interesting. And that's also important for people to know, because in addition to them saying, hey, here's a statin or here's a medication, they'll say, remove all the fat from your diet, which we know fat is essential for brain health and reproductive health. Now, there is a link, of course, between trans fat. We don't want to be eating margarine and shortening and all those processed trans fats. But the good, healthy fat, like the omega-3 fats, those are essential. So kind of bringing it back to the statin discussion, it is a $25 billion plus per year drug market in the world. When you look at like the national cholesterol guidelines, eight out of the nine doctors who write them receive money from the pharmaceutical industry. And then when people say, well, look what PubMed says, look what the research says. Well, two thirds, that's over 50% of all medical research is funded by those same pharmaceutical companies. So if someone goes in and they're presenting with a cholesterol and LDL above their typical range, which for them is above 200, I personally don't think a cholesterol like 205, 210 is that big of an issue, but it will get flagged. LDL above 100, they're going to flag. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Then they're going to say like, okay, here's a possible statin. But hypothyroid can drive those markers up. Simple, simple thing that can drive those markers up. So that statin's not fixing the root. It's not going to fix the problem. A B12 or folate deficiency can drive those markers up. Infections, lime, metals, mold can drive those markers up. And all those things can also plummet them. When people are like severely mold toxic, they have basically no cholesterol, which makes sense because what is needed to get the body healthy for mold, phosphatidylcholine, PC, cellular membrane health, because your cells hold on to those mold spores, right? Cholesterol is what makes them. There's this plummeted. So they're just holding on to those mold spores without enough choline. Those mold spores can't be exported from the cells. That cholesterol can't build that cellular membrane, brain fog, exhaustion, dizziness, no hormones, no sex drive, no libido, tons of weight gain. But they go to the doctor and like, Oh, you're eating great. Your cholesterol is 120, a plus gold star. And it's, it's, it's equally as bad. So you really, I feel like want it between from a total cholesterol standpoint, 160 to probably some people genetically have higher 220 ish. Um, and when we get outside that range, it's a big, big problem. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so lifestyle, I, I've, I'm like so baffled, like the whole mold thing too, Yeah. because this is to me, one of the invisible it, it's, it's an invisible factor. It's like EMF, this, you know, just dirty energy that we can't really, it's hard because there's not a lot of tangibles unless you do some serious diagnostics of your living quarters. 
but it can be causing so much. It could just wreak all kinds of havoc on your body and your cells. And I mean, it, it's, it impacts everything, but the cardiovascular piece to me is so critical because there are so many lifestyle components. And the first thing is medication and then removing fat from the diet. And we're completely missing all of the other potential contributors to dysregulating any of any of the the areas that relate to our heart health. Um, if they're out of range on, you know, their LDL or I mean, let's even just like make it broader. If they they are presenting with symptoms, they're going to their doctor and they feel like I just don't, you know, I'm I have a proclivity or health history of heart conditions. What questions should they ask their doctor and what additional labs should be run that are adjacent to kind of a a heart health profile that maybe wouldn't otherwise be picked up on by a doctor? Yeah, they can run the small density particles. They can ask for like a small density particle lipid panel um, in the very small density. And so those are going to give probably a better overall picture of cardiovascular disease risk. But beyond that, and I'm not saying don't get on medication. There's a time and place, right? Like if we can prevent a stroke, if we can prevent these problems as we're addressing root root cause, like if someone has a ton of atherosclerosis, which is the hardening of their coronary arteries, which is the underlying cause of most heart attacks, a very common cause of congestive heart failure, a very common cause of arrhythmia, that also has to be factored in of like, what's the severity of that? But the question should always be, what has caused this to begin with? Because a lot of people's diet is not abnormally crazy. And so, you know, they may have to run some mold panels or have someone look at their blood work and say, hey, you have some markers that might be indicating some mycotoxin issues because mycotoxins, which are produced from mold, right? They directly affect cholesterol metabolism. And so what they're going to do is they disrupt the enzymes that maintain the cholesterol balance in the body. That disruption can be exemplified by some mechanisms that involve the the breaking and making of bonds. And so what we are seeing in metals kind of correlate with that too, is like what has caused atherosclerosis? Part of it can be these effects of mycotoxins and mold that affect cholesterol metabolism that are creating these high blood pressures and hypertension situations. What I'm getting at with this is when you ask like, what should they ask their doctor? Their doctor probably doesn't know, (laughs) unfortunately, right? Because you know, they still think Lyme is like woo-woo. They still think like mold toxicity is not a thing. Like Lyme is called, I think, like a silent illness or like an unspoken about because it's just not recognized, right? It's not considered at least present day a problem. And so what you have to start looking at is like, okay, how's their gut, right? We know, we know, we know, we know, we know that LDL will respond to dysbiosis, parasites, metals, and mycotoxins by going up. When there's an increased toxic load, it's going to go up, okay? So then you think of like leaky gut, all the glyphosate in our environment from Roundup. That's going to cause disruptions in the body. It's going to displace glycine, which is needed for healthy gut. And leaky gut is going to cause the liver to produce these LDL particles due to their natural antimicrobial action. Like LDL particles sort of act like a soldier in the body. And so they perceive like, okay, we have dysbiosis, we have parasites, we have mycotoxins, we have metals go exhibit antimicrobial action. But then what happens is if these LDL cholesterol particles become oxidized, 
that can contribute to cardiovascular disease. But it's not always a bad thing. You know, I've run so many labs where someone's LDL might be around 100 or 80 or 90, and we start busting biofilms. We start going after parasites. We start going after mold and metals. And all of a sudden in their follow-up labs, three or four months later, their LDL has risen to 120, 130. That's actually a good sign that the body's built-in defense mechanism is responding to the inflammatory threat and imbalance coming from the gut. So like the body was designed to function normally. It's not, Hey, your LDL is high. You need a statin. Like, it's just so frustrating that that's the mentality of our current medical system and parasites. There are studies on how it affects cholesterol, mycotoxins, metals, bacteria, candida. Like there, there is clear evidence showing that congestive heart failure patients can have intestinal overgrowth of pathogenic bacteria and candida and increased intestinal permeability. Like there's actual PubMed studies that reflect that. This is re- interesting too. And I want to, I want to move over to like some of the liver markers, uh, because I know that there's a, there's a correlation there with parasites and pathogens and infections. There are so many hidden viral things in the body too. I think we don't realize that exposures, even as a child, like having strep or mono, yeah. like all of these different things. We think because we're not experiencing the symptoms of them that we've gotten over them. And this is something I've recently started to understand a little bit more is that even with COVID, like we think, okay, well, we're no longer tired. We're, we don't, we don't express the, the symptoms that affect our day-to-day life, but that virus could potentially be very well still in the body. And it's one more thing that your body is having to manage and regulate. So you think about all of these little things along the way that could potentially be contributing to all of these levels looking a little bit wonky and then getting a diagnosis, you know, saying, well, it's just a heart thing. It's it. There's so many misses there. We've, we've left so much on the table that could be a contributor, but it's completely unaddressed because we just don't see it, or we're just not testing for it, or it's not a question. We're not going back in the archives of our life to, you know, to, to bring about, you know, okay, well, what did we experience? What were we sick with? Oh, did we get hepatitis A from eating bad food? You know, like all of these different things. So as far as the liver goes, like what, what's the connection there? What should we look for with, you know, uh, alkaline phosphatase, like all these different markers that could contribute. We think, okay, is it just the liver or, or like you said, is there a gut connection? What, you know, paint the picture there for us for. So we'll look at, we'll talk about Alphos, AST, ALT, GGT, and LDH. There's a few other liver markers, but those are some of the primary ones and ones that are typically run, maybe not GGT, but the other ones. And I don't even know if they include LDH anymore. I mean, it's sad that they don't run these essential markers. They might, but ALKFOS, um, it's termed either ALKFOS or ALP on a typical lab, but that's an enzyme that's in the body. It's mostly found in the liver. It's also found in the bones and the placenta, and it helps fight off infections and bacteria. So the main function of ALP is to assist in the breakdown of proteins. Now, when people think protein, they think food protein, and that's not necessarily the case. When we are exposed and you think of things like Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, that's bad proteins in the system. And so when we have these diseases, ALK-FOS can be influenced and it can go both low or high. So we really want that in that ideal range of 70 to 100. So when we see someone dipping below 70, there's several things to consider. One can be severe immune dysregulation. Another could be that they're just simply not getting enough food. There's maybe reactive hypoglycemia, some liver stress going on, but a key thing is going to be mitochondrial dysfunction for that. 
On the opposite spectrum, when we see ALK faucets increasing, this is where there's like maybe a blocked bile duct, which when you mention parasites in the liver, we know that obstruction from things like liver flukes can block that bile duct and it can drive those ALK FOS levels higher. Any sort of inflammation or tissue damage, bone diseases, liver disease, kidney disease, it can all influence that ALK FOS marker and drive it above 100. So that's ALK FOS. Um, then you kind of move into your AST and ALT. These are enzymes that also break down proteins for energy. That's the role of a lot of these liver enzyme markers. ALT with the L in there, I think that one, it's primarily found in the liver. AST is also widely spread out throughout the skeletal muscles. And that's why sometimes people will see one more elevated than the other. Usually ALT in most people when there's a liver problem will be higher than AST, but that range you're looking for is 10 to 26. I've seen it both ways. When someone's liver's kind of like in the boxer rink and they're tapped out, I've seen where those enzymes just stop being produced and they're near 10 or below, or maybe they're deficient in B6 or deficient in magnesium. They're super low there, but with liver stress, skeletal stress, red blood cell, kidney, brain stress, it can elevate. AST and ALT can elevate. So it can elevate due to parasites, aka liver flukes or other types of parasites, Lyme, Lyme co-infections, metals, viruses, mycotoxins, anything that's going to burden that liver because that's kind of like the garbage disposal of your body. It has to filter all those toxins and chemicals and bacteria. So if it's needing more enzyme production, there's an underlying situation going on. And then the last two. So GGT, this is an enzyme that's present in the liver cells as well. It's also in the kidneys, prostate, pancreas, biliary tract, but mainly the liver. And 13 to 30 is that range. And hardly anyone do we see in that range. Very rarely is anyone in that range. This also gives us a lot of insight into um, glutathione deficiency. Key role of glutathione in order to properly detoxify, in order to prevent breast cancer, to shift that if people are familiar with the Dutch test, but if they're not, there's a cancerous pathway where estrogen can go down. You don't want it going down. And if you don't have a glut enough glutathione, it will create DNA disruption and go down that pathway versus the healthy protective pathway. Um, and just general liver stress can decrease it below that 13. So that's one of the most common markers we see low in people is low GGT. And it's a liver indicator, nutrient deficiency indicator um, as well. And then the last one is LDH. Are you familiar with LDH? I, I, if I do, I, it is not like top of mind. Okay. So it, most people aren't, it's, it's a marker that's not run very often and it's not spoken on very often, but it's one that I've seen the biggest change in patterns since COVID kind of entered our world. So it's mostly known for its involvement in carbohydrate metabolism. So it's called lactate dehydrogenase. It's a range that's kind of shorter of 140 to 200. It's found in the liver. That's why it's kind of in the liver family, but it's also found in many of the tissues of the lungs, which COVID is upper respiratory predominantly. And so, of course, when I started seeing that people's LDH levels were starting to creep up, I started diving into research and started finding that not only tissue inflammation can drive these levels up, but so can viral infections and so can underlying viral infections. So not only was COVID or post-COVID or spike protein or whatever it may be that's impacting people, not only is that a problem, but the fact that viruses replicate, it kind of wakes up some of those underlying loads. And LDH 
is elevated in about 90% of the time for active EBV infections, which is something I started running and seeing active EBV post-COVID. And that's why they're severely fatigued and losing all their hair and dealing with thyroid issues, right? You always have to keep digging for that deeper root. And their LDH was never high before. So then I'm like, okay, let me go even further into this. And there is a PubMed study that was run that looks at LDH and COVID. And they did a pool analysis and they found that pre-getting sick and even post elevated LDH was associated with a six-fold increase odds of severe COVID-19 disease and a 16-fold increase in odds of mortality. Wow. Yeah. And so if they're not running LDH in typical labs, people don't know this. They don't know what their risk is. They don't know their risk of severity or mortality. Now, of course, they say larger studies are needed to confirm, but that's a like sixfold and sixteenfold is massive. So what would you say if somebody does have, if they are on the low end of this range and and so they run this and they're like, oh, this isn't good. I need, I need to help improve this. What are the action steps to do that? Well, because it's involved in carbohydrate metabolism, if someone is low, below 140A, they probably shouldn't be fasting because the whole point of fasting is being able to drain out your carbohydrate reserves and utilize fatty acids for fuel. If someone's not capable of doing that, it's actually going to put a greater strain on the liver through gluconeogenesis to create new glucose. And then they're going to deal with a little bit of reactive hypoglycemia, which is a stress to the nervous system. So if they are low, the first thing that I'm asking them is how much are you eating and how often are you eating? Because we need LDH properly working efficiently. So that's a key reason LDH can be low. Other reasons are parasites. Parasites can decrease this LDH in some cases. um, And so can anemia, whether it's B6 anemia or cofactors needed for proper B6 absorption. Um, But if it's high, there is something going on either like disease, infection, viral infection, tissue inflammation, whether it's chronic or acute or liver biliary issues. So that you want to start exploring why is that taking place? What is driving that tissue-wide inflammation or liver issue? It's the Epstein-Barr is really, that's so interesting, um, that correlation with COVID because I know so many people personally that after they had COVID, they're like, oh, my hair is falling out. I still haven't gotten my, you know, and this is like way back when like, you know, you couldn't taste or smell anything, but people just never fully recovered. It was like something always kind of lingered. And so this is, so we're saying or that this studies have shown that reactivated Epstein-Barr, that having COVID has now reactivated this, this dormant virus that was in the body that is creating what may look like you know, long hauler symptoms or something that, you know, is still related to COVID that they just can't quite seem to get over the hump with. Right. Well, when you look at a lot of the like EBV symptoms, they mirror long haulers almost identical. Like they're almost identical. And so that's something that's really interesting. And then they've also come out and said that post COVID people are having like Hashimoto's and hypothyroid situations. And that's another thing with labs. Um, Like I like to look at MCV, which is in a complete blood count, MCH, complete blood count, the cholesterol panel, calcium, some of these markers to look at the health of the thyroid because it takes a 25% reduction in thyroid for the thyroid markers to show up as low in even a functional range on blood work. And so that's not good because they could be walking into the doctor and, you know, be functioning around 80% 
And remember when we said free T3, the active thyroid hormone activates all the other ones. So not only is their thyroid at 80%, their entire body's at 80%. So it's like, no matter how well they're eating and living and working, it's like, that's the, I'm doing all the right things and nothing's working type deal. Yeah. And we just talked about how the thyroid was connected to the cardiovascular system. Thyroid's also really important for liver health. We know that the conversion predominantly happens, the active form T3 in the liver. It's just blowing the lid off of so many things because there's so much more. It is not just, is your heart healthy? And, you know, do you have a, you know, atherosclerosis or do you have just a thyroid problem? There are so many factors that contribute to the expression of your health and what picture of the representation of your, of your blood work looks like. Well, and levothyroxine, Synthroid, when people are getting prescribed these, those are T4. They're not active free T3. So if someone is hypothyroid and it's a conversion problem and they're taking this medication, all it's going to do is lower their TSH because they're like, oh, you have enough T4, but then that builds up, their T4 builds up, it goes into the liver, it can't be converted and their free T3 is still below 3.0. That's the bottom limit for free T3. So you're on medication for your thyroid, but you don't have a T4 problem. You have a conversion problem. You need liver support. You need to cleanse your liver. You need to get rid of parasites. And then something that just continues to just like get my wheels turning today is the thing that seemed to help people. Mind you, there was a lot of things was ivermectin and ivermectin has been used for parasites. That's what it's primary thing it's used for. And parasites hold their weight at like a sponge for viruses for bacteria, for metals, for mycotoxins, which all what? They all stress the immune system. They all create cell danger response and viral replication. So someone gets on ivermectin and I'm sure there's other processes like from an enzyme perspective of how it stops viral replication. But I just kept thinking in my head, people are lowering their parasitic load, which means they're lowering what it can hold its weight in, which means their immune system intelligence goes up, which means viral replication stops. And so when people ask me, how do I support my immune system so that I don't get COVID? I'm like, address toxicity, do liver support, eat healthy foods, balance your minerals, have your drainage pathways open. That is always going to be my answer for every single person. And I think that's really important to recognize here because if you're listening and you feel maybe overwhelmed by the nuances of all of these different markers and thinking like, okay, I don't know if I'm ever going to one, remember this stuff or feel like I, I, the next time I run blood work that I'm going to just have an anxiety attack because I'm going to remember that there were so many things, but I'm not going to know the specifics and what it means to me and what it means to my, my, you know, specific blood work, that it all comes back to the foundational pieces, because if you can get those right, then the blood work is just going to be down. It's, it's just going to reflect all of the work that you're doing. But again, it's toxicity. It's addressing gut health and inflammation. Uh, and then knowing that, you know, potentially your body's immune system is still holding on to old viruses. And so what does that look like for you? Is it, is it mold? And is it the, is it environmental? Are you living in a moldy house that's creating toxicity, this ongoing burden to your cells and your body? And it's suppressing you, leaving you more exposed to things like parasites and pathogen infections and, you know, everything downstream, right? That your energy production systems of your body just can't work. They can't function. They can't keep up with the demand. 
It's so true. And that's what I always tell people. You got to go back to the baby steps and the foundations. And it's not like the sexy thing to do, but it's the thing that's necessary because our brains are conditioned when we see a marker out of range, like liver enzymes high or creatinine lower high, which is a kidney marker. We're like, hey, what do I take for the kidneys? It's no. What is stressing the kidneys? Mm. Right. It, it, it takes it a step further. So ranges going back to like infection markers, that white blood cell we covered, but like neutrophils, those bacterial fighters is 40 to 60. Lymphocytes is 24 to 42. These are the optimal functional ranges. Monocytes is up to 6.9%. You don't really want it above that. ESNFLs zero to 3%, basos zero to one. So when someone's outside of those ranges, which most people are, unless there's biofilms, because biofilms are protective barriers that hide these infections from the bloodstream, they'll say, well, how do I fix that? It may take time to fix that because if parasites hold their weight in bacteria and your neutrophils are high due to bacterial infection, you A, have to do foundations and drainage first. Then we have to begin detoxing parasites. Then you can begin to address some of those deeper rooted loads. So it's always a systemic roadmap. And it's always this idea of drainage and foundations because a healthy body can address a lot of these on its own. That's, I think, a really good point that you make because I would say when we look at labs, there's 20 to 40 markers of our clients. They're out of functional range, 20 to 40, but the lab will flag too. Wow. That should honestly, hopefully give somebody some peace because at the end of the day, what could look like oh, I am, my body is a wreck. It could be as simple as addressing things like toxicity and parasites. And I'll say this, I have seen it in other uh, clients I've worked with in the past, but even I was referred at one point, this was several years ago to a cancer center because I went in and had just a normal blood count from a general practitioner And I was telling him that I just wasn't, you know, I just had a lot of like GI stuff, just wasn't feeling all that great. And he was like, well, we ran your labs. The only thing that, you know, I'm really concerned about is that you have a really low white blood count. And the only thing I can really think of with your immune system, uh, you know, appearing to be so stressed and at the age I was, I mean, I was very young at the time, you know, is that you, you possibly have cancer. And they literally told me that. And, and, and I did not know at the time what I know now, but something just told me this is not, this does not make sense. There's something else here. And so, you know, the cancer center called me, we need to get you in right away, all the stuff. And I was like, no, I just, I don't think that's it. Turns out I had massive gut infections and parasites, like so much. I mean, it was just beating my immune system up. And I started doing, this is really what got me like going on functional labs because I thought I just needed, I think I need to do a gut test. Like, I think I need to see what's going on. So I ended up finding somebody that ran a gut test on me. And I mean, it was like, a Christmas tree of light of, you know, red, all the red flags. Cause I had all the primary infections, all the secondary infections, all the yeast, all the, you know, all the overgrowths. And it just, it sabotaged my immune system. Had I not thought that I would have probably just had, I mean, I already had enough stress from him, like bringing up cancer when I'm, you know, just had my second child and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm so young, but like have some peace knowing that even if things look like they're out of, they're out of, sorts or range that there are some things that you can likely do work with somebody that can help you through these protocols, because there is a sequence like Emily was talking about, like you don't just want to dive head first into just kill, kill, kill pathogens. Like if you can't go to the bathroom. (laughs) So it's important that you take those foundational steps and you help your lymph and you help, you know, the drainage pathways so that you can actually detoxify and not just start 
opening all the floodgates and it has nowhere to go because you're going to feel a lot worse. Uh Uh, But anyway, I just bring that because I, I know how overwhelming and intimidating it can be. And sometimes if you see labs and you start seeing all of the red flags popping up, you think my body is spiraling out of control. There might be a lot of things that are a little bit sideways. However, there are some very simplistic things you need to do that can probably start to remedy a lot of those problems. You and I have a similar story. And I mean, if anyone's worried about their labs being an absolute disaster, mine were an absolute disaster in 2017 when my health collapsed to a point they wanted to put me on four different medications. I mean, my at a statin at like age 21. I mean, my lipid panel markers were through the roof, severe Hashimoto's. My ANA was through the roof. My liver enzymes were in the 200s. You know, I had such, such, such high eosinophils. My neutrophils lymphocytes were out. My blood cells were out. My creatinine was at a 0.45. Like my kidneys were basically almost like failing me. They're all in range now. Granted, it's taken me years and patience and time. I always say blood work is like a beautiful alarm system for the body because sometimes we accept symptoms as our norm. Like, oh, I'm I'm used to having low energy. I'm used to not sleeping well. I'm used to not having that list could go on and on and on. Or this has just become a norm for me where you honestly forget what it feels like to feel good. And so getting these routine labs checked and just taking it as information. This is information showing me that something's imbalanced, but hey, there's something I can do about it. It's always just information. It's not your identity. It's not like a let's freak out. It's just, it's information that you can use to further enhance your health. And for those of you that are very data-driven, you know, all if you're if 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 that's really what is a comfort for you, sometimes it can be helpful to have some benchmarks. So running that lab work, seeing where you're at, doing some of the legwork, then rerunning your labs and saying, okay, I can actually see the progression. I can see I'm moving in the right direction. Because I think in natural health, that can be something that's lost and it can be an additional stressor because a lot of times it's okay, well, we're using markers of how we feel and energy. And we're like, but is that, am I really okay? Or is there something, or do I have like a brain tumor? I like, it's, we all ask ourselves these questions and it's like, but I just need to know. I just want to, I feel like I would sleep better and have less anxiety if I just knew. So maybe run these markers, run these labs, have somebody walk through, walk you through the results, right? With a functional minded perspective that can tighten up those ranges and those optimal windows that we talked about And then you can rerun them and see, am I heading in the right direction? Or does it look like there may be something else that needs to be further investigated? And that's where you can start asking the questions of, are there other viruses? Are there exposures that I'm maybe are are current exposures that are contributing to some of my insufficiencies or presenting in, you know, labs that are off? Um, So I, I think that there's a number of questions that can be asked and you can seek out those further labs. What is it, Emily, that you feel like, because I want to kind of bring this to a close, but in your experience and what you've seen just in the last couple of years, uh, because a lot of the landscape of our health has changed in, in just the last two years, it's mm-hmm. unbelievable. What is it that maybe is alarming to you or that you feel like people, people need to have a heightened awareness of this? Because I see this trending in maybe a direction that is not beneficial for somebody's health, but maybe if they could course correct now, or at least turn on those alarm sensors to be a little bit more aware that Mm -hmm. they could be ahead of, you know, potentially something that they would be facing in a couple of years or months down the road. 
gosh, there's so many directions we could go with this. <laughs> um, I will Can't say, open a can of worms. I know, I know. Um, I'll just go with the things that come to my mind first, but I would say looking at labs present day, cause I've been doing this for about six years now, worst I've ever seen. And I don't say that in a way of to instill fear. I say it in a way of there's, there's certain things that I think are essential for getting the body back in balance. You know, we've been thrown so many different wrenches the past few years that are foreign to our system. When you really look at things, right? A virus or whatever the heck COVID is that was new, right? Like our body and our immune system didn't recognize it. And that's going to send off a cascade of systems in the body that causes disruption. And then you factor in the insane amount of time people spend on devices and the radiation and the Wi-Fi, the outrolling of 5G, the fact that they are now pushing fake meat and that movement. We're kind of coming out of the world of low fat, but I also think that the opposite has been pushed and that's not great. I think we're going to see a rise in cardiovascular risk when people are pounding the fat. That's great. We need it. We do not need it insane amounts, right? And so like we're seeing that clog arteries and drive blood pressure higher and affect a lot of these markers. Right now, though, what I've seen more than anything else is the gut is just completely compromised. And so when that happens, 90% of the immune systems in the gut, Hippocrates, where does all disease begin? The gut. And so when I look at some of these gut markers on labs, they're the worst I've ever seen. When you look at globulin and you need that tight range of 2.4 to 2.8, people are above or below it. Like there is a compromised gut. And if there's a compromised gut, we're going to have constant immune reactions, mast cells, histamine intolerance, food sensitivities, bloating, HCL won't be produced. Then we can't absorb the protein and amino acids in our food, which is needed for healthy mood. And so we see depression climbing, anxiety climbing, right? Because there's an access, constant access between the gut and the brain. And so with, with looking even like all the medications for depression, and anxiety that have climbed through the roof the past few years, immune system, gut, compromised immune system, compromised brain, that affects the health of the adrenal. So then we see mineral imbalances. So like there's, there's pumps, sodium, potassium pumps on our cellular membranes. And so if our adrenals are stressed, that pump gets dysregulated. And the most pat- common pattern we see is this hypoadrenic response, mitochondrial dysfunction of too little sodium with too high potassium. It's like a seesaw. So we'll see a sodium below 137, a potassium above 4.5 or trending in that direction. And the adrenals are stressed. That high stress situation is throwing off that pump. Well, if that's happening, those are electrical charges. And we need proper electricity and boosting mitochondrial like a battery in our body. So if that's not taking place and that pump isn't being activated, the entire system of our body goes down. But at a lot of it stems back to the health of that gut, coming back to the gut. So I would say that's probably the biggest takeaway I'm seeing right now is compromised guts that's affecting everything else downstream because of it. And it doesn't help that our food supply and what's sprayed on it is not great. I think you are spot on. And I think a lot of people are aware, but things are changing so fast. The landscape of the world we live in and what our bodies are up against is changing at warp speed. And it's, it's like, we can't even keep up with the changes because it is so busy and we're constantly dialed into technology 
Uh, and so there, our nervous system never gets a break. It's blue light. It's constant yeah. noise. It's, it's just, it's, it's just this constant consume, 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 whether you realize it or not, we're always absorbing everything around us. And there's, there's very little recovery time. And we're trying to, we're like whiplashing our nervous system by, you know, throwing down the gas all day long and then slamming on the brakes at night and then wondering why we can't sleep and why we're having anxiety and all of these things, but we need rest. And so we're having to medicate and it's, it just, it becomes this cycle, but it starts to move faster and faster down the tracks. And before you know it, you've just derailed and it had a major implosion. So, you know, to say all of that, I mean, I appreciate that perspective because I do think that part of being on top of our health is really being proactive and, Mm -hmm. and really seeing where are we headed? Like, what is it, what is it that I'm dealing with now? Like you said, address like what's going on right now, get that barometer and that overall internal state of where we're at, but then also look up down the tracks and see like, where are we headed? Because if I keep, if I keep the same patterns in play, I'm going to get the same results, if not worse, because I'm headed in that direction so quickly. All that to say lab work. I love that you, you, you really said it's, it's just a great picture of what's going on in the body. Mm -hmm. Um, but, and it's, and it's stuff that you can work with. It's, you can take actionable steps from that. Make sure you're working with somebody and, and Emily has got so many resources and people that she trains that, that do this in, in an incredible way. And they're just changing, they're changing health. They're changing people's lives by educating them and wa- walking through this with them. So we'll get to that in a second, but, um, I just appreciate all that you've shared and hopefully this is really prompting some action. I know it is for me. I'm like, I need to run, <laughs> I need to run labs. It's been, <laughs> it's been a minute of, of a little, you know, scared. <laughs> it's going to be fine. You'll be fine. You'll be good. Yeah. And support your gut health. At the end of the day, we, we always come back to that. It's like gut health, gut health, gut health, um, because our gut is so affected by many things. And, you know, it's it's the yeah. second part of the body. So I think that's probably if someone's like, okay, what tangible things can I walk away with? Even before you get labs done, I do think that's beneficial. But um, going back to this idea, you said it's stillness and rest. And there's questions I ask women in our group program often of like, when's the last time you spent 10 minutes bored in total stillness and silence, no social media, no phone, no outside environment factors, just total silence with your eyes closed. And like, that's just not part of our norm. And when's the last time you ate a meal and you were present and you breathed before you ate like five deep breaths and you weren't on your phone or watching TV, you weren't chewing like a few bites of the soul and you were really being mindful of taking your time and chewing And when's the last time you set your phone aside? And a lot of times when we make recommendations, people's physiological response is excuse. I don't have time. I don't have energy. And I always say, pull up your app on your phone that tells you your screen time. What is it? Most people are above 10 hours a day. And so I say, can you eliminate that even by 10%? And what could you do with an hour that you would use on your screen for other things, whether it's breaking that up into 20 minute segments, 20 minutes relaxation, 20 minutes of walking, 20 minutes of like listening to a meditation or a relaxing app or taking time to eat or whatever it is. But we also have to be honest with ourselves because I think that there's a lot of times where people will say like, I'm stressed and I don't know why. These are factors that you have to include. Like what is your screen time? What is your nervous system doing on a day-to-day basis based on your daily habits, rhythms, and routines? So that is something I think people have to start with. 
is just finding a way to bring the dial down some of that big exhale, because that's, you, you can take all the supplements in the world. You can do all the liver cleanses. You can do all the gut cleanses. You can do all the things. None of it will matter. And things will keep coming back. If that foundational habit is not established. That is so good. It, it's probably the hardest thing too. I'm laughing because I'm just thinking being quiet by myself for 10 minutes. just gives me anxiety sometimes because my brain feels lost. It's, mm-hmm. it's almost like it's this weird, anxious feeling like I, should I be doing something? Should I be thinking about yeah. something? Should I, what's everybody else doing? Like, it's I know. Terrible. But that, those are like the first thoughts that come to my mind. And I think, why can't I just be at peace with 10 minutes? Like, it's not a big deal. I'm not missing out on anything. There is this, un, it, that is revealing enough right there. I don't even want to, I don't even want to think any more into it because it's just, it just, that's, that says it all. I know. Let's I all know. just work on 10 minutes and we'll report back. Yes, that would be good. <laughs> we'll hold each other accountable here. It's, it's on free. It's at the end of the day, it's free. <laughs> Yeah. And we really have, you just have to do it. You can't, you just can't, like you said, you can't out supplement. You can do all the therapy you want, but I'm telling you, if you can't just get still and be quiet and really, really allow your body to rest, it's going to be chronic infection, chronic infection over and over and over again. Um, and you're just not going to get out of the pit. Like you, you really won't get out of the pit and you won't be able to grow because you can't heal. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. Oh, okay. Well, Emily, can you tell us where people can find you about your courses? You've kind of got like a more basic one for somebody maybe that just wants to get the nuts and bolts. And then you also train a lot of practitioners, which I think is awesome. And I am dying to take it. I just, I need to carve out some time to do it because this is to me so fascinating. You're incredibly skilled and talented and gifted as an instructor, but also just in the knowledge in this space. So if you are really interested in learning more about this, Emily, share with us where we can find you and, and access all that you have to offer. Thank you. I primarily am on Instagram. It's just my name, Emily Morrow. I'm taking, as we're recording this, a month entirely off of social media, going back to just mental health, stillness, and rest, something I do every year, just taking a sabbatical and realigning my priorities and setting boundaries and kind of really figuring out what I want this new year to look like. But Instagram is where I have tons of posts and information, even on like things we couldn't touch on today with blood chemistry and other root causes and things. Um, I also have my website, theemilymyro.com, where I have blog posts on some important organ systems, some signs and symptoms, some top supports, whether it's the pancreas, the liver, the thymus, the kidneys, the adrenals, the brain, tons of information there. On both of those places, you can find the link to my master blood chemistry website that has two course options. One, like you mentioned, is basic. There's a lot of people who just want the nuts and bullets of ranges and top reasons things are high and low. Then there's also a more complex course that a lot of doctors and nurses have taken, but also moms who wanted the information for their family and their loved ones. And if people have a certification like y'all's functional um, medicine certification, and then go through the course, they'll probably be able to set up a lab account and order labs for themselves, their families, their clients. And that that's like a lot of labs. It's not just blood work. It's Dutch tests. It's micronutrient testing. It's metal testing. It's real-time labs, mold testing. So it kind of opens up this whole other world of functional medicine labs. And that is very in-depth. Like that's me spending, if people went through one module a week, it's going to be anywhere from eight to 10 weeks of course material. 
which is something I recommend to fully absorb it. So yeah, that's kind of what I have going on right now. It's amazing. And we actually had uh, a business partner of Emily's that was on the podcast. Um, Allie was on and we talked a lot about kids' health and things. So if you're interested in that, make sure you go back. It's as we're recording this, it's not out yet, but it will be in about the next two weeks. So it'll definitely be out by the time you're hearing this episode. Um, but she also has an incredible line of supplements called Root Cause Formulas, which addresses, helps address a lot of these imbalances, helps you get those foundational pieces. So definitely check that out because there, she's really been able to formulate things that are changing people's lives. And she's also instructing and teaching people. And that's really big. We want to teach people to fish. We don't just want to give them everything on a silver platter. We want for you to really understand what's going on in your body. Know where you can find these resources. Know where you can find the people that are experts in this field. Because at the end of the day, like it's your health. And I would want to work with the best of the best too. So that's why we're here. We're just bringing yeah. all of these great people to you and their resources. And we're hoping that you know this sets you in a new direction that can change your life and help you heal and resolve problems that maybe you're not getting answers for elsewhere. So Emily, thank you so much for being with us. What a fun chat. I feel like there could always be like multiple parts to some of these episodes because we have so much ground. So maybe we'll, we'll come back with like, you know, episode two of blood chemistry, but um, thank you guys for joining us. Make sure you follow Emily on social, like share. If this podcast serves you in any way, we love hearing your reviews. We love sharing the message. So send it to a friend or uh, just connect with us on social. We'd love to hear from you and, and see your, your beautiful faces. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode.